Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert with my co-host, Sports Radio 610, Sean Bajani. And in this one, we preview Texans, Ravens, key storylines heading to their AFC Final Four game. Plus, we hit big Astros stories this week. Well, one big Astros story this week for sure. And Sean, it's the fourth time the Texans have played in the divisional round in their history, but not sure I've ever felt like they had a chance until I do think they have a chance on Saturday. How are you feeling about it? Of course you got a chance. You got CJ Stroud uh, and you got D'Amico and his defense. (laughs) Keep in mind what they were able to do against the Cleveland Browns just one week ago with a hobbled Will Anderson and Jonathan Grenard. They combined to play just like 46 snaps total defensively. I know it was Grenard 15. I think Anderson fought through about 31, 33 of those, whatever it was. So consider that somebody that uh, maybe we take for granted, don't talk near enough about that was an absolute difference maker in that game, allowed the Texans to do what they needed to do um, and execute defensively the way that they were able to is Blake Cashman. He was absolutely huge. I think, uh, second in the team in tackles that day. So when you got the defense rolling, you got a healthy CJ Stroud and most of your receiver core, as long as that includes Nico Collins, I say they got a chance. What I'm telling you is you get to this part in the season and you think, Oh yeah, you got a chance no matter what last Last couple of times they got to this point in the season. Yeah, Deshaun Watson, maybe you felt a little bit better about it, but the other two times that they played in this round, it was TJ Yates and Brock Osweiler. You you felt good about those two chances uh, with those two guys? No, screw those guys. Um, I'm going to go D'Amico Ryans on you and say, hey, man, this is the 2023 Houston Texans. That's all we care about. That's what it is. I mean, even if you talk about Deshaun Watson, you'd face the Kansas City Chiefs at their peak. <laughs> you know, you needed probably a 48 to nothing lead to kind of keep him at bay. And maybe that wouldn't have even been enough. Who knows with that defense and how the Chiefs, you know, a few years ago dialed up just explosive after explosive after explosive. Once upon a time ago, like, I don't know, maybe three weeks ago, I was looking back at that box score, seeing how fast the Chiefs scored on the Texans defensively. You know, if you were going to talk about anything in terms of similarities and how you felt then versus now or any time before in the past, I'll tell you this, man, even last week, the Texans defense, they gave up some explosive plays. You know, it looked like this game was going to be a back and forth nail biter, like who was going to step up to the plate and just put their foot down. Ultimately, it was obviously D'Amico Ryans, but I mean, man, you know, massive explosive plays to David Njoku, and I think Amari Cooper might have had one last week. I can't remember, but man, you thought you were in for it again, and the Texans' defense, as good as it's been, as solid as it's been, they give up explosive. That is going to be a key, particularly on the road in that environment with the multiple different looks offensively they give you, and Many, many ways that Lamar Jackson can make you guess and guess wrong in trying to stop and slow him down. Before I break it all down or before we try to hit some of the key points here, just a quick reminder that tomorrow I'm posting a show with a Ravens insider. You're going to want to check it out. If you need a Rockets fix, I had a Rockets super fan and OG Red Rowdy Maya on just in the last couple of days. So make sure you got that one and 
getting the notifications if you didn't. And let's go back to the Texans, Sean. And did Case Keenum really say that C.J. Stroud is going to the going to be the best of all time? Keenum, yeah. not from the Bill Pelichick school, I guess. <laughs> I uh, I heard that somebody read that read that quote from the Athletic this morning when I was driving in to cover the Texans, and I haven't read the article yet. I have a pretty good idea when Keenum said those words. Uh, <laughs> I think Peter King was it was talking to him after the game the other day, and he probably said it at that point in time. But I mean, that's pretty strong. I, you know what? It's funny because. I actually want to, I always want to talk to Case, but he's just rarely in the locker room. And when he's in there, it looks like he has some place to be. He's just ready to get the heck out. I mean, probably ready to go just digest film and just kind of get on to the next. And I wanted to talk to him because nobody in that locker room, not even really Bobby Slowick, and he's been very transparent and great with the media. But I, I just don't get a sense that nobody else in that locker room kind of gets C.J. Stroud, maybe more than Case Keenum, and has maybe been able to help C.J. Stroud more than Case Keenum. So when I heard those comments from Case this morning for the first time, the first thing that came to my mind is they relate on a completely different level with one another than they can with anybody else. Even people like Will Anderson, um, you know, who obviously in D'Amico who shares like the same sentiments and is very outspoken about their faith and stuff like that. I think that's key. But I also think too, you know, because of case and getting it back to a football perspective here, nobody'd seen the multiple different, you know, situations like case where he's come in and played in games as a third string quarterback, a second string quarterback, a starter, somebody that the Denver Broncos thought was going to be their franchise guy once upon a time ago and lasted one season. He's been through it all massive highs, massive lows. Um, so I, I think for him to say that he's looking at it from a perspective that nobody can really relate to, not even the best football eyes and minds around when you're watching CJ play. That's because he's helped him through. And maybe in some cases, Stroud has helped him understand some things about what he once called and told us the greatest hits of the West coast offense that he's playing in. So, Hey, I can't wait to watch it. It's going to be a hell of a ride. It already has been through just six, seven months of watching CJ Stroud play Texan football. I'm going to go a little Old Testament on C.J. Stroud in just a second here. Noah Brown is out. Steven Sims is in. What's the loss of Noah mean? And I guess for C.J. Stroud, how do you feel about Noah's arc? See what I did there? See what I did there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Noah's arc. There you go. Nothing like a little uh, Bible humor. Yeah, it's. I, I thought I thought it was huge last week for Noah to even be on the field in practice because knowing the severity of his injury and what I'd heard about his back and, you know, maybe even the small fracture being there. I mean, the fact that he was even trying to give it a go and played in five NFL snaps last weekend, I thought was, uh, was pretty baller. Um, I thought it was huge because I mean, look, that's, that's a guy that, you know, has put up some monster games against opponents this year has had one of the best, if not the best season of his career. And if he wouldn't have missed, you know, six or seven games this year, it, he would have blown it out the water. It clearly would have been his very best. I think the Texans feel like they have something in Noah Brown with determination they make in the offseason. Who knows? But 
he's going to be missed because that's that's a legitimate big play threat that the defense has to respect. And last week for the Browns, he had to prepare for. This week, if you're the Ravens, you don't have to worry about it. I mean, look, I, I asked D'Amico about Sims, and he really spoke more about Sims in the return game aspect. Now, look, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean anything because they could very well use Steven Sims in kind of a gadget role, as we've seen with John Mechie and Xavier Hutchinson at times this season. But Steven Sims is a guy that I felt like should have gotten a shot a long time ago because his pass catching abilities improved, his route running has improved throughout the course of a season. He was a guy that flashed in training camp, and he brings a dynamic of speed and quickness that this offense would fit perfectly for him. So I'd be interested to see if he has any sort of contribution offensively this weekend, but I'm not banking on it. I just think if there's any little extra wrinkle you can make the defense, the the opposing defense kind of consider or think about, I mean, it's a win for you. If you're Bobby Slowick and you're CJ Stroud, you got to be able to dial it up and execute it accordingly. Yeah, Steven Sims also, if I recall, had a little bit of issues holding on to footballs prior to the Texans. And I, and I bring that up because the story that a lot of people are going to focus on on Saturday, the game time temperature in Baltimore is 24 degrees. And Sean, I need to blow up, explode. The Texans can't handle cold weather myth. And I think it is a myth because this franchise has a history of being great in cold weather. They beat the Packers once in three-degree temperatures and once in the snow. They beat the Bears in 12-degree temperatures, the Titans in 20-degree temperatures in the coldest day in Titans history at home. And they also beat the Browns in 30 degrees. And Stroud just played at Ohio State. Singletary just played with the Bills. Hutchinson was just at Iowa State. Nico and Dieter were at Michigan. Sean, those are the guys handling the football Saturday, I'm not worried about it. No, I don't think he should be. Yeah, I get the point you made, but I mean, historically speaking, you know, that kind of, it's it, that stuff doesn't matter. I mean, the, the 50% of this roster is new this year, and a lot of those guys, you mentioned a few of them, they, they've played in cold weather before. Like, Steven Nelson's played in Pittsburgh. C.J. Stroud's maybe not played very many games in cold weather, but it has at least practiced around this time of year when it's cold. Yeah, and I brought up the history just to say that I think there's just this idea that because a team is in Houston hey, and they practice yeah. in Houston that they somehow can't do this. And I, what, I, I know it's not the same team, but it's just yeah. the idea. It just doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. But I don't know. For some franchises, it does. Look at the way that uh, Miami didn't handle themselves against Kansas City a few days ago. I think, what are they, all-time 0-6 in extreme cold weather games? <laughs> so. Yeah. That that's an element of their franchise's history that uh, is going to spurn them. But hey, when the New England Patriots have to travel to Miami, they hate playing in the humidity and the, in the uh, bright sun. So the Miami Dolphins do have that working for them. Uh, they can gloat about that. But I don't know. It, it is weird teams that play in in stadiums and warm weather climates for most of the season. To me, it's about a mindset, but then also having the right guys to buy into that mindset. And so not only do the Texans have the right guys in terms of the mindset you have to have is just that tough, physical, relentless nature to play this game to begin with, but they also have a lot of key guys that we just went through that have been there, done that before. Bobby Slowick, I think it was Bobby Slowick. Somebody asked him about, uh, you know, hey, you know, your approach to the game 
game this weekend against the Ravens. Uh, does it change your level of preparation, what you think you can do, can't do? And he said, well, I thought this was interesting. Yesterday when it was obnoxiously cold, it was ridiculous. They were practicing in 25-degree weather, similar to what it's going to be in Baltimore on Saturday. He said, you know, if practice would have gone a little bit different yesterday, talking about uh, Tuesday, then yeah, maybe there would have been a consideration to change some things up and approaching things differently. But it wasn't any different. Guys were catching balls. The ball was harder. It was colder. They couldn't feel their hands. It didn't look like they'd missed a beat. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but Slowick um, pretty convincingly said that, hey, there is no need to even consider a change in their approach and what they're going to do, try to execute on Saturday. These are two of the best teams in turnover margin. Sean, it's big in any game, but especially below freezing weather. Absolutely. Uh, Ravens are plus 12, and the Texans now, if you include the Cleveland game, are a plus 12 themselves. The, the thing is, you know, and turnovers, I was looking at this uh, yesterday or a couple of days ago. Yeah, the Ravens, they create a lot of turnovers. They have a lot of takeaways, but they turn the ball over a lot, too. You go back and you look at each and every box score. Go to Pro Football Reference so you don't have to sift through them all. But, I mean, it's pretty routine. I mean, they're coughing it up once, maybe twice more routinely than anybody else. They're going to give the ball away. And Lamar Jackson, historically in the postseason, a place where he's 1-3 in three now in his six-year career, turns the ball over in the postseason. That's a narrative that he's you know, going to feverishly be trying to uh, change on Saturday. I think he's got seven or nine turnovers in his playoff career. I think it's seven. But that that's that's something that's very, very real because you talk about the Texans. It hasn't mattered. They play cold. They play in rain. play in the comfort of their own NRG stadium. They take exceptional good care of the football. C.J. Stroud has five interceptions this season. Three of them came in one game. You could excuse really two of them away. They tip passes and maybe a great ball that he could have gotten a tick higher to Nico Collins in the back of the end zone. They don't fumble the ball. Devin Singletary's done a fantastic job of taking care of the football. But I absolutely do think, and I'll put it in a nutshell for you, I think the game that we all thought we were going to get this past weekend against the Browns is probably the game that we get on Saturday. And it's one that is low scoring, and it absolutely comes down to who takes better care of the football, especially when it's cold and you're numb and you can't feel things. I have a feeling that's just going to be more of a factor Saturday than it was last weekend. Another factor that I don't think we mentioned in the post game: the Texans only committed three penalties for 20 yards Sunday. That's been yeah. an issue all year. Man, good point. Uh, that's something else I looked at the game prior to that, the game that they had to have against the Indianapolis Colts to close out the regular season, 11 or 13 penalties in that one. You go back and you look at the very first meeting between these two teams week one, Texans and Ravens in Baltimore, a combined 24 penalties, 13 of which came via Baltimore for 106 yards. I mean, my goodness, that's a ridiculous amount of yards to give up and then to go back and get in explosives and routinely just punch the Texans in the throat in the red zone as they did that hurt 
the Texans have got to play a much cleaner game this weekend. And look, both teams, week one, if you go back and look, a lot of those penalties for both of those teams came in the first half. They cleaned it up a little bit better in the second half. And really, that's when the Texans dialed it up, you know, defensively, at least in terms of getting to Lamar more prevalently and forcing him out of the pocket. They got like three of the four sacks on Lamar in the second half. It's going to be interesting to see how D'Amico Ryans and Matt Burke kind of approach that. But one thing's for sure, like, the Texans, you're, you're talking about coming off of just a three-penalty game this past weekend against the Browns. That's fantastic, but I do worry about what is to come. This is a team that would way rather you know, suffer the consequences of being overly aggressive than not being aggressive enough. They've just got to be disciplined while being just as aggressive. All right, here's another big storyline, and this might be the biggest key of all for the Texans. Can they stop the best rushing offense in the NFL, the Baltimore Ravens. Was it, what, 4.9 yards per attempt or something like that? Yeah, 4.9, I think, uh, in terms of uh, yards per carry. I think that's third or fourth best in the league. They've got the most rushing yardage. And, hey, when you got the Gus Edwards and Lamar Jackson combo back there, that's a tough task. Matt Burke said today, I mean, this is the ultimate this weekend. It's the ultimate because Lamar – He's had the best season of his career as a passer. He's had a pretty typical year for himself as a runner. Uh, I think he's scored five touchdowns, running the ball for 821 yards this year. You go back and you look at what Lamar did against the Texans in that week one game. I think he only carried the ball like eight times for 38 yards or something like that. But it was when he scrambled that really hurt the Texans. I think he ran for three first downs all within the first half on third downs. That hurt. Maybe one of them was on a first down, and I think he got like 14 yards or something like that. But you can't give those up. And that was a heavy point of conversation today with Matt Burke is, hey, how do you slow a guy like Lamar Jackson down? I mean, they got to him with pretty much a four-man rush in week one. I think maybe brought Blake Cashman or Denzel Perryman late on a delayed blitz on one of the sacks and did a really good job of containing him. But the key to doing that is you got to be really strong in the interior. And I think that's where the Texans, you know, kind of benefit now facing the Ravens for a second time because that interior defensive line is playing so much better together and they're deeper now than they'd had than they at least were in week one. I know everybody's banged up to a degree, but I think that's gonna be pretty huge. You can't give up Jonathan Taylor type stuff to Gus Edwards and Lamar Jackson this weekend and expect to win this football game. They're gonna have to at least do a serviceable job at stopping the run. But it's really, in my opinion, the off schedule stuff that they've got to limit with Lamar. And Gus, you know, if he's able to leak out, Lamar's able to dump it off to him or extend a play, drop his shoulder and get some extra yak that way. That's what concerns me. Texans have probably got to put together their best tackling game of the season this weekend. Yeah, I think of a couple of things. The edge guys have got to keep in their lanes. They can't, you know, lose containment on Lamar, you know, as far as, you know, when he's in the pocket. And also, you know, the big difference is you and I know is, Christian Harris has just come on so much and yeah. somebody at a second level that might be able to chase Lamar if he, you know, if they if they want to keep Christian Harris in, maybe spy Lamar a little bit. I don't know. Well, it, look, have you seen the clip uh, of uh, Christian Harris before the interception this last mm-hmm. weekend against 
Yeah, say, say what happened there. Say what happened. So D'Amico and Harris are on the sideline. And D'Amico's got the tablet, and he's showing Harris exactly and telling him exactly what to do. He just says, stay put. Eyes on the quarterback. Just look at the quarterback. Play the quarterback. He knew what was coming, but that's the end of the clip. Harris is like, got you. All right, boom. He goes out and makes a play. No other conversation needed. No other words left to say. D'Amico in that instance is just giving Harris a pointer, trusting that Harris can use his instinct, follow direction, and just make the play. And he did fantastically. I mean, I think you could, without that clip, just go back and watch that play and easily identify that, you know what, Harris or D'Amico had seen something previously on tape that says, you know what, this is what they like to do with their tight end. If you just stay home, and play quarterback, it'll be there. Trust your instincts, you make a play. That's exactly what happened. I thought it was fantastic. But Yeah, the, the pick six. I don't know if you said it was the pick six. That- yeah, it was pick six, of course. That kind of stuff is, is so true, man. You know, just disciplined linebacker play, but those little tiny details, whatever D'Amico was able to identify in that instance, and it might be something simple, just the way that they align. You know, maybe that, maybe, maybe with the tight end, just split off of the right tackle, just a hair was enough of an ID for D'Amico. Like, this is the only play they run when they do that. It could be something as simple as that. You never know, unless you go back and you pour through hours of film and you're able to identify that stuff. But I'm working on an article on sportsradio610.com right now, and um, I'll have it tomorrow morning. But I think the most important part of this game is how these respective defenses attack the quarterback. Hey, four-man rush, five-man rush, if you're bringing six on a blitz, the Texans don't blitz a lot. And they, they're they blitz against no matter what quarterback it is, Robert, has dropped off significantly since week 10. They blitzed Derek Carr 10 times this season. That's the most of any quarterback that they'd faced this season. They blitzed them 10 times. And you know how successful they were in that game. They blitzed Lamar Jackson five times. And I'll I'll give you these numbers. You know, for Lamar Jackson against the blitz this season, it's not good. Against pressure, he's pretty dang good. In fact, I think he's the or one of the best. But against blitz, Lamar Jackson is not even in the same zip code as a guy like C.J. Stroud in terms of passer rating, completion percentage, and overall success rate. So I think that's going to be big, but consider the fact that Will Anderson and Jonathan Gennard, two guys you absolutely need everything from this weekend, have been on the field a combined like 43 snaps in the last two games. That is going to have to be something that maybe changes drastically this weekend, or you need to get significant contributions from guys like Derek Barnett and Majai Sanders. Barnett was just huge, and he's been huge since he's been here. That's a storyline. Also, no idea if you remember this, Sean, but DeAndre Houston Carson Mm -hmm. was in training camp with the Ravens, and he was signed off the Texans, uh, or to the Texans, off the Ravens practice squad back in November which means he was there during the Texans game. He was a Baltimore Raven. Maybe he'll know some tendencies. Yeah, I talked to uh, 
DHC yesterday, actually, in the locker room. And I was asking him, you know, about going back to Baltimore, you know, what that's going to be like facing off against some of his former teammates. And DHC is a very chill dude, man. He don't worry about too much. He don't give you too much either. You know, he just said a lot of typical, you know, hey, we're just going to go up there and execute like we know how to, blah, blah, blah. Um, I couldn't get much from him, but that is an interesting little angle. And that here's the talking point. Just as we've seen the Texans do at times this season where they bring in players during the week that maybe were just against the opposition upcoming, you know, the previous week or two, it's intel, baby. And so there's at least a little bit of added intel that the Texans can maybe gain from a guy on the defensive side like DHC who was in those meeting rooms planning against maybe a C.J. Stroud maybe some tidbits there, seeing Lamar Jackson from the other side in practice every day, knowing his tendencies, knowing some verbiage, knowing some keys. I think those are all very important things. DHC, by the way, is an extremely smart dude. Um, so if there's any question about him having not banked a lot of that uh, previous intel from his uh, prior employer, I would suspect that he remembers quite a bit and uh, is going to share everything and has probably shared everything that he knows to this point. I'm doing this show tomorrow with the Ravens insider, and I'm going to drop some similarities or some weird coincidences between this game and the game 12 years ago between the Texans and Ravens. And one of the things, and not exactly a weird coincidence, but just remember it was Harbaugh on one side for the Ravens versus D'Amico at linebacker the last time these two teams faced off 12 years ago in this uh, round of the playoffs. And also, and this is not a good factoid, Sean, but I stumbled on this one. Did you know the Ravens are the first team in NFL history to beat 10 teams over 500 in a season? (laughs) That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Maybe I can raise you a stat. Right. Was it 2019? The last time that the Baltimore Ravens were as big of a favorite in a playoff game, I think it was 10 or 10 and a half points against the Tennessee Titans. Maybe it was the Indianapolis Colts. I can't remember. And they lost. Well, Ravens are nine, nine and a half point, depending on what book you look at any given point of the day this week, nine point favorites against your Houston Texans routinely. That has not mattered very much when you're talking about teams favored by that much home or on the road in the divisional round. The numbers are pretty crazy. Uh, I might include those in my column uh, for tomorrow morning. But that's that's always fun stuff to look at. And I think it probably has a lot to say about the lack of respect that the rest of the country has. It doesn't have, rather, for the Houston Texans, even though the C.J. Stroud's being talked about more this week and the probable MVP uh, in Lamar Jackson. I, I understand the, you know, the spread being over a touchdown because the Ravens have not just beat teams this year. I've looked through the scores and there's been a lot of dominating performances yeah. by more than one score. I understand all of that. But at the same time, I took note of the fact that uh, I believe Lamar said this week that he wishes that they had played. And maybe you lose a bit, bit of momentum. But the other thing is the weather that everybody just kind of grants to Baltimore. I think the weather shrinks the number. Now, I understand the Texans wouldn't be favored. The Ravens are the better team this year. 
but the weather should shrink the number a little bit because usually the weather shrinks the score. So I'm just surprised after how the Texans played last week and the fact that the weather is what it is, that they still believe that, that, that the Ravens can win this game by more than a touchdown. And, and I, I, I'm just surprised the number is as high as it is. I'm not surprised that they are the favorites. Yeah, I think the fact that, you know, weather's definitely considered road game is definitely a consideration but I also think the way that the Ravens play versus what the Texans have routinely given up this season in terms of the explosives I think uh, maybe you know a lot of the football people Vegas thinks that's going to be a deciding factor in this game and it very well could be but the thing is as many explosives as the Texans defensively have given up this season the biggest key for them and the reason for their success this year, in my opinion, has been the ability to counteract that. This has been the most explosive Texans offense maybe ever in their franchise's history. I mean, literally, if you pull up the numbers, I think you probably find that. I don't remember seeing this many explosives on a week-in and week-out basis. I mean, they've got to be averaging at least four every single week, 20 or more in the air or 20 or more on the ground. And I know by definition, you know, an explosive on the ground is maybe 15 plus whatever. Gets you a first down and moves the chains. To me, that's that's pretty explosive when you're able to do that on a consistent basis. But I think those are probably all, you know, big time factors in it. Um, let's uh, switch gear to the Astros. But before I switch gears, I want to remind everybody, the Texans post game on Saturday, it's just going to be me and Steven. He's going to be pinch hitting. Sean's got some family stuff to take care of on Saturday after the game. So me and Steven on the post game, uh, make sure to join us as soon as the game is over with. We're going to try to get things going right when it's over with. Now to the Astros, because the thinned out relief core got even thinner. They've already lost Neris, Maiton, and Stanek. Now Kendall Graveman is out for the year. Sean, not much behind Presley, Abreu, and Montero at this point. I saw a, a lot of people on, on Twitter, you know, just kind of banging their head against the wall, you know, with the uh, Graveman news of the season-ending injury. I don't know, man. I mean, you, this is a guy that the Astros have traded for twice, and he's appeared in a combined 45 games. And it's not like he's been great. He hasn't been terrible, but he hasn't been great. He hasn't been a guy that I would deem an irreplaceable. We're in this stretch now of seven straight years of this team being badass. <laughs> like, when are we going to start respecting at least a little bit, like, the guys that don't play routinely and look at this as a World Series contending organization instead of just 26 dudes that are amongst the very best? I'll, I'll just speak for the fans here. I, I guess the concern from them is – they were. They don't have a lot of veteran arms. I mean, it's been unusual that they don't go into the season in the relief corps with this many veteran arms. And, yeah. and I know that the Astros fans respect the organization, but the organization has changed over this time. And they're still not sure what Dana Brown is yet. And I guess that's where the concern is. And they feel like, hey, you know, at some point, you might have to spend a little bit over what you what you typically spend, and Jim Crane's going to have to pull out his pocket, but a little bit more, and and I understand the concern, but I also understand it's not over yet. You know, I, I've seen yeah. this many times in baseball. 
It's not over yet. There's a lot of signings that happen between now and the end of spring training, and 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 that could still happen. Yeah, it absolutely could still happen. But I mean, let's let's not pretend that over the course of the last few years, the Astros hadn't gotten you know in the heart of a very long season contributions from guys like Seth Martinez, you know, come give you valuable innings in the fifth or the sixth after a poor start, just to kind of get you over the hump, so to speak, so you can get to those seven, eight, nine guys in the bullpen. But Ronel Blanco, you know, had a really good stretch for the Astros this past season. I mean, there's guys that do have the stuff, but do they have the consistency to be able to go out there, you know, day in and day out? you know, every couple of days and give you valuable innings out of the pen in the middle in the middle innings of a game. That's what you liked about Graveman. His ability to do is get big situational outs too. But he's not an irreplaceable guy, in my opinion. I mean, there's a reason why the Astros hadn't hung on to this guy after the first time. You know, he wasn't terrible again this last year. I think a 242 or 224 ERA. The whip was really, really high, by the way. Uh, walked a lot of guys, I think walked 16 dudes in 22, 23 innings pitched this season. You could do better. <laughs> you could do better. And I have to believe that in a World Series contending organization, you've got some dudes, if you trust this pitching staff, that they're going to get the very best uh, out of some of these younger, unproven, non-household names. Yeah, he's still a lot of question marks. I mean, it was like a four or five ERA, and I know some of that, was as a starter. I can't remember what the splits were between him as a starter and reliever. I should have double checked on that. But yeah, but I understand. I understand the concerns. He's just not not a lot of experience, and he's not somebody that was ever respected as the guy that could come in yeah. and be a great arm. I think you brought up a good point. You know about Dana Brown not really knowing still to this point who he is as a general manager. I mean, we know he's a guy that says he wants to be aggressive. We know he's a guy early on set of him first taking the job that said, hey, you know, as an organization, and it was a big side eye at Jim Crane that, you know, we might have to consider looking at some longer term contracts if we want to keep guys around, maybe not 10, but, you know, seven, eight year range. We haven't seen that yet. So it's a TBD. It's unproven. But. The other point about Jim Crane is, yeah, he's going to have to open the pocketbook. You know, he's rich as hell. He's buying homes in River Oaks just to tear them down, you know, for $20, $30 million a pop. Like, you know, he's got the cash. It's does he want to spend it for a team, again, that is going into this 2024 season as a legitimate World Series contender. They don't have to spend a half a billion dollars on their ball club to do so. So we know routinely how that's turned out for the Dodgers and for the Yankees and for the Red Sox, so on and so forth. But they're good, and they haven't changed. And I thought we used to like and appreciate and respect that about our ball clubs. It doesn't constantly change over time, and you're not just out buying you know, perennial all-stars at a at, at drop of a hat. So the fact that, you know, you're coming back again for the second straight year, really, with your core group of guys, the ones that produce the most and big moments for you, I like it. I believe that I'm willing to give a little bit more time up to the trade deadline for Dana Brown, Jim Crane, and their new manager, uh, Joe Espada, an opportunity to evaluate and make a decision on, hey, we need to make a trade for this cat, or we need to pull the trigger on this guy. We've got a lot of time left. I, I will say that, you know, I, I don't know 
If I loved the trade at the time with, with Kendall Graveman, I knew they needed a reliever, but what you didn't anticipate was this injury. However, because of the injury, because Graven, Graven was nothing special this year, that trade does not look really good. Even though I don't like Corey Lee, I didn't particularly like him moving forward as a as a starting catcher. You know, as if, if he was a backup, well, I'm like, oh, okay, whatever, a backup catcher. Trading a backup catcher for a lever didn't mean a whole lot to me, but that trade still does not look super good because Corey Lee still felt like a little bit better of an asset than somebody that was just a stopgap reliever or something like that, sort of like a fourth, fifth or sixth inning guy. I don't know. Yeah. And that one doesn't look particularly good. I think we're all a little bit nervous for being honest. You have to be about a 41 year old Justin Verlander this season too. That trade may not end up looking too good uh, down the road. If he's not healthy enough to give you the innings, the games, uh, well, but Verlander paid off because he got you where he got you this year, and and you know yeah, almost got to the, it, it right. wasn't the, he wasn't the reason you didn't get to the World Series this year. It was it was no. really Fromber. No, but I mean, you know, again, if if the guy gets hurt in spring training, God forbid, or if he gives you twelve starts before he you know burns out at forty one, then that's going to be something that's talked about. I hope that doesn't happen. Obviously, uh, well, I don't it, forecast that, but. I don't think that's a Dana. I think that's a big Jim Crane. Yeah. Was a, in, in, in on that one. So hey, yeah. but you know what? They're 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 very much tied at the hip at this point in time. You know, you know what I mean. And I know you could parse through singular transactions, deals, trades, things like that. But they're very much tied at the hip because Jim Crane, after bringing in a brand new general manager that they were supposed to be in lockstep with, because Dana Brown was that aggressive kind of a guy that Jim Crane wanted in his GM that he didn't have in James Click for Crane to still kind of step out and, you know, do what he wanted to do, get that deal done for Justin Verlander. It is very much going to be on him more so than it would be Dana Brown. But Dana Brown's got to kind of reciprocate some of the other challenges that the Astros have, the needs that they have. Like we're talking about in the bullpen, be that aggressive guy. So until he does that, they're both, you know, going to be in line for plenty of criticism down the road if things don't work out. Yeah. And it's, this is one of those deals, even if they get through camp and something still hasn't gotten done, let's see how some of the arms that they do have look, because that shows if Dana Brown has evaluated them correctly. And also let's see what happens as the season goes on, because you, because you start the season Without arms in the bullpen doesn't mean you don't get our arms in the bullpen eventually. So we'll see on all that. And I, I got to end on this note, Sean, because this is really interesting note that I saw today. Jerry Glanville was named defensive coordinator today, defensive coordinator at Division II Northwestern Oklahoma State. Forty years ago, the Oilers hired him as their defensive coordinator. Thirty-five years ago, they fired him as their head coach. So, Sean, he is 82 years old with now 57 years of coaching experience. So, Sean, I want to see you out there on a field coaching somewhere in about 40 years, rather. I No disrespect to Jerry Glanville, but you just saved me because you told me how old he was, 82. I didn't have to Google that real quick, but uh, I got to be honest. I didn't know he was still alive. 
<laughs> Got to be honest. Hey, somebody showed me an old picture the other day of, uh, I forget the guy in the middle, but it was Jerry Glanville and Nick Saban on a coaching staff together once upon a time ago. I think, was that with the Houston Oilers? Or was <laughs> when Saban was a defensive backs coach? I can't remember who the guy was. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. We just showed that picture last week. and Oh, it was you, show, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, so. and, and don't forget that um, – <laughs> You know, he he's the man in black and, you know, I, uh, RG, my old co-host, he actually texted me this. So I want to, uh, I'll show some love to RG on this one. Cause he, he said it before I could even think about it. Uh, Glanville probably will leave a couple of tickets for Elvis at, uh, Northwestern <laughs> Oklahoma state at the gate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He probably will. That's, that's crazy, man. That, I mean, I really, I didn't think he was still around because you haven't heard of Jerry Glanville. Uh, when's the last time he's even coached or consulted anybody at any level of football? I would be interested to know that. And then, um, yeah, no, he's been he's been doing stuff. I I looked at his resume and it's it's like he's you know he was doing the NFL and then it dipped and he was in, in he's like gotten it's been smaller and smaller jobs in a way but remember he was like even 15 years ago he was at the university of hawaii and he's done some some football league recently that i don't he's haven't even heard of he's living it up he said you know what i'm gonna go see if i can get me a job in like the greatest place on earth hawaii <laughs> see who's gonna take me over there and now he's going to northwestern d some d2 school yeah, let me let me see if the, any of these places ring a bell to you. He was at the head coach at Portland State from 2007 to 2009. Then he went to the Hamilton Tiger Cats as the DC in 2018. So after nine years, I guess, of not coaching, he went there and then the Canadian the, football. Yeah, I believe that's the Canadian football. And then the Tampa Bay Vipers, and then the TSL oh. Conquerors, oh. and then the Alabama Airborne was oh. his last job in 2022. Yeah. And you don't know about the Airborne and the Vipers and the Conquerors, man. I mean, they're legit. No, I've never heard of any of that. Um, I have no clue. Best of luck to Jerry Glanville, man. I hope I'm wanting to, you know, kick ass and take names at the age of 82 and, get, <laughs> and go through a grind of D2 football. Um, yeah, best of luck to him. All right, man. It's good to catch up before the game and can't wait for this one to happen. Don't forget, we got the show tomorrow. And then the post-game show's on Saturday. Go Texans. Let's go. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Attack!